Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Tides podcast. In each episode, we invite guests to have honest conversations about their mental health journeys with the goal of destigmatizing mental health within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Due to the nature of the podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of mental health topics and possibly triggering experiences. While we and the majority of our guests are not trained professionals, we encourage you to practice self-care while listening and seek professional guidance if you or a loved one is in need of support. With that said, let's start the episode. Hello, my name is Rosie Asipochi, and I would describe my mental health journey as being told and teased for being a worrywart and then figuring out I just have chronic anxiety <laughs> as an adult. So. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Changing Tides podcast. My name is Matthew Yonamura and welcome to this episode. If you're noticing that the quality on YouTube of this video is not so good, it's because this was a very long weekend of us tabling over at Nisei Week in the JACCC Plaza. We were really happy to be able to participate in that, but I was there both days for a very long time. I did not want to get my camera set up to record this intro, but I do not want that to detract from you listening to this episode or you watching it on YouTube because this was another in-person interview that I was able to conduct over at the Terasaki Budokan. Uh, this was a really cool episode to record. Uh, one of the reasons why we did this one in person is because it's actually where this person hosted our art talk workshop. Um, we've done art workshops in the past, but we've decided to officially name them the art talk series uh, as a series because we're gonna do more of them in the future. And we were really happy to do it with this particular artist over at the Terasaki Budokan for the first time of this series. Uh, this person works over at Janum as their graphic designer. Uh, she's incredibly talented and she's very outspoken about her mental health. And she was just a great person to kick off our art talk series and a great person to do this in-person interview with. Uh, probably one of the coolest people I know and i just can't wait for you to see this in-person interview on youtube or for you to listen to it on any other podcast platform so with that said i am so happy for you to listen to this interview that i did with rosie yasukochi rosie thank you for coming on to the podcast thank you for having me uh we are in the same room where you did your art mm -hmm. workshop with changing tides which was a blast and i remember you mentioning uh, I don't know if we'll use the intro that we just used or <laughs> the one that we can record later, okay. but you did mention being a worrywart or being told you're a worrywart during the art workshop as well. Yes. So as you said, it, you kind of developed and learned it was anxiety, but can you kind of discuss like where this comes into fruition and where it plays into your life? Okay. So uh, I guess like basically I got called a worrywart because I would worry about all the things that like are just a part of childhood that like everybody else worries about when they're kids, but I would just like get fixated on it. And then I would seek reassurance from friends and my parents and like teachers um, to the point that like, like my mom, I think asked me at one point when I was little if I wanted to go to 
see a therapist mm. about my worrying, but I thought like worrying that much was normal. So, and like my mom couldn't read my mind, so she didn't know how, just like how much I was worrying. Um, what was the second half of the question? Um, how you kind of like learned that this is like anxiety and not just being uh, a name call, you know? Yeah, so the things I would worry about as a kid were, uh, very like existential and a lot mm. to do with like like good and evil like mm. like fear of like being reprimanded or like authority like I got called a goody two shoes a lot as a kid um because I think kids thought that I was like a narc kind of uh -huh. but it was just that I had like so much anxiety as a kid that I didn't know about and I didn't know what to do with it mm. so it'd come out as like oh like are you sure we should be doing this or like oh man, like, I feel like I need to like tell an adult about this, you know, like that kind of thing. So, um, I think a really good example is like one time, I think towards the beginning of middle school, maybe, um, I was in Sacramento visiting my, one of my Japanese, my Japanese auntie. And, um, she lives like in that part of SAC where like all the houses kind of look the same. There's a couple parts of SAC that are like that, I think. Okay. <laughs> but me, I have 10 first cousins and me and like seven or eight of my cousins, my cousins are mostly older than me too. Um, so it's not like I was just like with like a, like a ragtag, like Goonies squad, uh -huh. you know, where like I'm the oldest leading the way. Like they're, all my cousins are pretty much older than me except for a couple. Um, and we, we would go play at this one private school's um, playground. Um, and this one time that we went, there was a policeman sitting in his car outside of the private school. And like, he saw us go into the playground, but there was like a no trespassing sign. And the whole time that we were playing soccer, like kickball or whatever at this playground, like the cop was there and he wasn't doing anything. Like he was like, these are clearly just like children, like teens, just like, fucking around can I swear right. yeah okay um just like <laughs> just like fucking around you know like shooting the shit and stuff and then as soon as we got back to my auntie's house I like found my mom in the kitchen and like interrogated her almost about like mm. if I was going to be arrested by the police for like trespassing and I feel like that was like that was definitely a clue I think for my parents that I I did worry too much as a kid um but I didn't I didn't really like realize how bad it was until I was in college. Um, and there's this thing like, we, I mean, I've told you about like, like I have OCD and stuff. Um, and I think it's like, I don't want to speak for everybody with like obsessive compulsive disorder, but I do think it's common from what I've heard for you to kind of like be prevalent in your childhood. Hmm. If you've had, if you've, if you're like somebody who's just had it undiagnosed for a really long time and then it might kind of like go dormant is how I describe it um, when you're like in high school because there's just like so many things going on so many other things to worry about and like your hormones are crazy and everybody else is worried so you're like this is normal and then um, you get to the point of like being in college or being a young adult or even like full on into adulthood and it's this feeling of like just getting hit by a bus and the bus is OCD and you're just like thrown into like this full cycle of like obsessions and compulsions but you don't know what you're doing and you feel crazy you feel like you're like am I going like psychotic and then you eventually seek therapy and then your therapist hopefully is like you have OCD 
that's what happened. Okay. <laughs> that's what happened to me. Gotcha. Yeah. Did I answer the question? Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. But that, that leads me to ask, like, okay. so for some people, like learning of your diagnosis could be even more stressful. Yeah. But for you, it sounds like, did, did be hearing like, oh, you have OCD, did that yeah. kind of help you in like processing and getting improvement with this anxiety and this OCD? Like, yeah, I felt so relieved. Huh. I, I like, I like, cause I got diagnosed by a psychiatrist. Um, cause my first therapist that I saw after college, like I was seeing him for a couple years. Um, I, I told him I thought I had OCD and he was like, I think just cause also like the under, he was like a little bit of an older guy and like a lot of people in, like even my own mom didn't think I had OCD mm. when I first brought it up to her. Cause so many people that have just been in mental health work for a long time, like, um, I don't know. It's just, there's so much about OCD that's just recently been, or not recently, but that's just been more recently, like broadly, um, spread in yeah. terms of like awareness and like information. So a lot of people still think of OCD as like watching hoarders on TLC mm. or like, like watching like one of those, like bananas, UK reality TV shows where they're like, this woman hasn't hugged her son in five years. So we're sending her to an intensive clinic to right. change that, right. you know, cause she's such a germaphobe. So because like, like a little bit of my OCD is contamination, but like majority of it is something called pure OCD, which is when you don't do stuff like flicking light switches on and off, you just ruminate over and over and over in your head. So it's like purely obsessional and your compulsions are not purely obsessional. It's just that your compulsions are mental. So like nobody can like see you doing right. them. So you're just kind of a lot of people with pure OCD or like pure O is what we call it. Just kind of like suffer in silence for like years. Cause you just think that like you're losing your mind, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, okay. My ADHD is kicking in and I forgot, I forgot what we were talking about. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you you did answer the my question, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, which was basically just like you know, did it help you to figure out? Because mm. because it sounds like you like yeah. understanding it helped. Because for me, like when I was diagnosed with depression, yeah, I went from calling it a funk into calling it depression, yeah. not knowing what it was. Absolutely. So for you, like going from just being called a worry wart to yeah. like knowing what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was pretty, it was, it felt really empowering, honestly, hmm. like not to be like corny and stuff, no. but it, it was like, um, also just like having been told by so many people like, oh, I don't think that you have OCD. And then I finally ended up getting a new therapist and then she's like, I love you, Allison. She's the best. <laughs> um, so she's the one who like made going to a psychiatrist feel safe to me because I was so in a bad place when I was seeing my first therapist that like his, his way of going about seeing a psychiatrist was like, Rosie, if this behavior continues, like, I think we really have to think about sending you to a, see a psychiatrist, oh. which is like the worst way yeah. to do that. And it does not make it feel safe. I felt really, I felt like the psychiatrist was like last resort medication is like, oh, you need it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so Allison made me feel a lot better about um, like going to see a psychiatrist. And then I, I love my psychiatrist. Um, and he, he like gave me an OCD evaluation and like 
um, a short form version of the ADHD one. So that's how I got diagnosed. I literally cried during my appointment when he was like, you definitely have OCD. So I was like, what's the news? And he was like, you definitely, definitely <laughs> have obsessive compulsive disorder. And I like, I started crying because for so long, kind of like you said, like I just been told, oh, it's just, it's just anxiety. It's just depression. Um, but like, I just felt like my brain was going to explode. Yeah. Like it didn't feel like just anxiety and it didn't feel like just depression, you know? Not that one's like worse or better than the other, right, theoretically, right. or to like compare. It's just like, I like I, I knew what those things felt like. And I also would talk to my friends about like their anxiety. And I was like, I, my thing is like different. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like on a different level of like, I'm not even worrying about things that could potentially happen. I'm worrying about the things that like are most likely to literally never happen you know right so no, that's I, how i found out yeah, yeah i hear that too because yeah like you're i think you're one of the first people to be like oh that diagnosis um like helped me it was yeah. empowering because i've i was i always said that too yeah like i i was the same boat my when i was diagnosed they're like yeah you have major clinical depression yeah i started crying too because i was like oh this is the actual thing yeah because a big part of it's also like is it just in my head no right <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so i i feel the same way so i'm glad that someone else like had like a good experience with being diagnosed 100 yeah i get that 100 percent. it was super validating yeah is how i would describe it and it also i think like just like knowing what my diagnosis is made it feel a lot safer for me to like accept that i need to be medicated mm -hmm. so like i've been on antidepressants for like almost two years mm. no a year okay over a year a year i think around a year and a half now okay and it's like literally like 180 yeah. my life like everything has gotten so much better but with like the way that my first therapist is going about medication and talking about it and then also just like not knowing what i was being medicated for mm -hmm. like it was so difficult to accept a needing like literally needing to be on medication because my brain just chemically is built different yeah and then like be like like i call it like medication roulette which is when you don't really know what you're being medicated for oh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you just end up it's like it's like same thing with like birth control you know where they're mm -hmm. just kind of like well we don't know anything so just keep trying them until you find one that works and then you end up like trying all these different things and being like well, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> okay. You got it. Yeah, obviously, shout out birth control. I just wish that there was a better system in place for figuring out which one we should, we should be on, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I mean, I, that would make sense. I don't know anything about yeah. it, but I would guess that if they're just throwing pills at you, that's not. It's not a fun feeling. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. Before we get all over the place, I, I haven't asked my first written question. Mm. So I'd love to know, because that's how I met you, yeah. is where did your passion for art come from? That's a big question. Okay, that's a long question. So the way I usually describe it is that both sides of my family, so I'm half Russian Jew, half Japanese, fourth generation on both sides, very polar opposite, but a weird amount in common, kind of. Huh. Um, but pretty much, like, 
a lot of both sides of my family like are artists, not professionally, but just in either like how they think, what they like to do with their free time or like what their hobbies are. Um, so like, like even like my mom, for instance, and I'd be like, even, even my mom, I love you, mom. Um, <laughs> um, like, uh, cause I'm an only child. So I'd hang out with my parents a lot as a kid. Um, so whenever my mom, my mom is on the phone a lot for work cause she works in mental health. She does, she has intakes at different nursing homes. So mm. she's in communication with a lot of different people throughout the mm. day. Um, but every time I'd see my mom on the phone, whenever she'd get put on hold or just on a really long phone call when I was a kid, she'd like be doodling on their newspaper mm. and like doodling around like Seattle Times, the letters or like coloring stuff in or like drawing little patterns and things. Um, and my grandma, my Jewish grandma was also really into artwork and like, um, like loved art and would like collect a lot of art. Um, she was a lady of many tchotchkes and knickknacks about the house. Um, and then my Jewish grandpa actually was really into Japanese um, like painting, like sumi painting, um, and also like watercolor painting. So I would, I would paint with him as a kid and stuff. Cool. And we'd like watch Bob Roth sometimes. Cool. Um, yeah, very, very cool guy. Um, and then my, my Japanese grandma also like painted a lot and was just very crafty. Like she, she made my first, she was really good at sewing. She, she made my first kimono. I have like a quilt that she made, wow. you know, like she's always making stuff for the whole family and stuff. Um, and then my dad, who's Japanese, he uh, is really into woodworking. Cool. So that's been his hobby. Um, and it started with him making spoons because he got passed down. A, it's so confusing. My, okay, to go back. Okay. <laughs> my family's very big. <laughs> So um, my Jewish great grandpas, one of them, I think it's, I think it's two different things for two different grandpas. I don't think it's the same grandpa. I'm so sorry to my Jewish family. I wish I knew better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think every single one of them was. Maybe a couple of them. Maybe, but... maybe my mom. Okay. Yeah. I'll talk to her about it after. Okay. But, um, <laughs> so, so also like my family's very musical. Like my, my Japanese grandpa played the harmonica all the time. Cool. And my Jewish great-grandpa, one of them was in the Cleveland Orchestra and played the bass. And my other Jewish great-grandpa was a professional woodworker. So my dad got really into woodworking when I was in like middle school, maybe like eighth grade, freshman year kind of thing. So then he got passed down my Jewish great-grandpa's set of woodworking tools. And he started making mm. spoons. And then he made bowls that kind of looked like canoes. Um, they're an odd shape. And then he kept making so many spoons that he had to make my mom a spoon rack for all of the spoons that he made, which I think is like the most wholesome, cutest yeah. thing ever. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I've, I've always, I'm the first person in my family to be like, art is my profession, hmm. but I feel very fortunate and like privileged that like my parents were always very supportive because hmm. my whole family kind of dabbles hmm. in arts. No, that's super cool. I mean, yeah. yeah, I was lucky enough to have parents that support the arts as well yeah and it's so scary if they didn't oh it's so scary yeah so and i'm gonna get into like <laughs> the scariness of the art field a little yeah. later on but okay. like to discuss the actual art talk workshop that you led mm -hmm. um can you talk about what that was like for you to like 
do, I know you've done more workshops before in the past, mm -hmm. but also, you know, the inspiration that you had for that theme of yeah. the zines that we made. Yeah. So should I contextualize sure, that context? Please. So um, for my workshop, thank you for inviting me. I had so much fun. Good. 10 out of 10. <laughs> I was like so excited. Good. Before and after. Right. <laughs> and during. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Yes. Um, but basically, so so it kind of came about because I've been, don't steal my idea, okay? Whoever's listening or watching, do not steal my <laughs> idea, okay? But I really want to make a, a book about being a worrywart. Mm. Um, and like, I think that there might be a couple of children's books out there that are about it, but it's also- It won't be like, like this one. It won't be like this one. And also there's only so many things that you can make children's books about, I think. Uh -huh. um, but basically like um, just being into like, more like illustration and like graphic novels in college and stuff like I and also just kind of looking through my own like kids books collection because I was a really big reader as a kid um and like also being an only child like you have to find things to do to occupy your time right. when there's nobody else to like annoy you throughout the day <laughs> that's what I'm assuming having a sibling oh, yeah. is like <laughs> I have two older brothers <laughs> So I was the one annoying Okay, them. you can you can you can bet me on that. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but um so I had a lot of like children's books I loved as a kid and I also loved looking at the illustrations in them and stuff. Um like one of my favorite illustrators ever. I think his name is Taro Tariyashima. Hmm. I hope I got that right. But um he he made he wrote and illustrated those books, um, Umbrella and Crowboy. I don't know if you're familiar. That's okay. They're gorgeous. Okay. They're so beautiful. Um, I hope that's his name. Anyway, we can, we can correct that later. Um, <laughs> can you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah. The, the inspiration oh, the you workshop. had for the workshop. Yeah, so, so sometimes I'll just, like, when I'm at the bookstore, um, just because not all bookstores sell zines, for instance, or, like, art magazines, I'll, like, go to the children's section hmm. because it's, like, kind of, in my brain, for some reason, that's like the most similar thing that I can think of. Um, so like when you had asked me about that workshop, like it genuinely coincided with when I had been at um, Skylight Books in uh, Los Feliz and like they had a book, um, which is one of the ones I ended up buying for the workshop, but it was, it was about being the feeling of feeling blue. Right. And right. it basically just described like clinical depression um, through the eyes of like a, a little boy who just wakes up feeling blue one day, you know? And like, I think as somebody who like didn't even understand like, like what depression and anxiety were or like what the difference between that and like feeling sad or mm -hmm. feeling lonely were as right. like growing up, like, like I was literally like such an angsty teen sometimes. Like I'd go on these like walks in the rain in Seattle and be like, I'm so sad. But then I'd like go home and be like, I don't know what depression is. Uh-huh. Which is like, what? No, that's, <laughs> that was a lot of teens though. A lot of teens though too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, I'd be like, I'm just crying by myself in the rain under my umbrella in Seattle while I go on my sad walk that I do daily sometimes. Oh. You know, yeah. so. So, yeah. Well, this is probably something else is going on. Like, I just, but I just didn't know, you yeah, know. And then yeah. when I got to college, I had friends who were like, "Oh yeah, I have anxiety," and I was like, "Oh, like that's awful. Like I'm so sorry, but I didn't know I had anxiety. Right. I assumed that my like stomach aches and like nervousness were like something else. I didn't understand that like I had like clinical anxiety yeah. or like 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 
general anxiety disorder was like what my diagnosis was at that point. So I basically like my workshop of like making zines. We basically made zines where um, everybody was tasked with making a zine for their younger self to help them like work through either like a, a difficult event or a difficult feeling or like a trauma that happened in their past at any point in their childhood through adulthood up till now. Um, I think to me it's just like I like I talk about like inner child stuff with my therapist a lot so I like I like activities where you're thinking about the same things that you're thinking about in terms of your mental health but you're just framing it in a different way and I think also like framing it in a way of explaining it to a child or to somebody younger than your current self just really helps you like kind of like break down and like simplify these like really big scary concepts sometimes and makes them feel like feel a lot more like tackleable or hopefully feel more like like um, tackleable and like doable to like figure mm -hmm. out you know like yeah. sort through no i really i i really enjoyed the the idea behind that yeah and having the kids books passed around as an example yeah. is awesome yay um so like i'll share like my the the zine i made at your yeah. workshop it was just like about a little boy who wants to become an astronaut. He works really hard to become an astronaut. And then like when he be he becomes an astronaut, he goes to space, oh. but then he's like, I wonder if there's like, I, like, I did this and this was like yeah. a big accomplishment, but I wonder if this is actually my calling. Yeah. So like for me, it was like the whole idea of like, when I was a kid, I wanted to do all kinds of stuff and I'd yeah. try it all, but like yeah. none of like, you know, you can't really tackle all those career paths. So that was kind of like what I was trying to explore in a silly way, but That's so you know, sweet. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, but, thanks for sharing. Uh, of course. And um, speaking of though, you were you were like, because when we asked you to be our, um, you know, to lead our workshop, yeah, I didn't know like how much you'd want to discuss mental health because yeah. in the past you'd have a mental health speaker and then the art workshop leader. Yeah. But you were like very, and we all appreciated how open and candid you were about your mental health story. Yeah. Um, so aside from like this workshop, what role does like art play in your mental health as well? So much, so much, even when I don't, even when I'm not aware of it, I think, because I think like, um, well, okay. The other thing was I, I was pretty, a little bit depressy, we'll call it in college because I was making a lot of, a lot of my like bodies of, Art work in college were about like intergenerational trauma with like mm -hmm. Japanese incarceration yeah. in my family. And then my, my grandpa was also in the 442. Okay. So just got a little PTSD floating about. Just, you know, a little, little bit of intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Which we're all aware of. <laughs> um, so, oh God, I already forgot your question. Okay. Mental health and art. Mental health and art. Okay, thank you. Um, so, I think like it really helped me to like sort through that by making that art, but that art also made me incredibly sad and depressed because I was just reading horrible shit all day, every day. Right. Like I was literally like at one point I was like reading through like personal justice denied, you know, which is like that big like government official report on like incarceration and stuff right. and like um or or reading like as part of it i read the whole like mouse series which is about um are you familiar with that mm. it's by art spiegelman and it's about his um 
his dad's experience in the death camps, mm. um, like Nazi death camps, and then like his PTSD and like intergenerational trauma from that that he's like passed down onto his son who like made the book. Um, so it was just really kind of, and also, also just that year, that year was the year right after Trump had been elected. Mm. And also it was the year that, um, we were having, it was just like Trump being like absolutely unhinged. Not that he isn't usually, but just right. like absolutely like the first introduction of him as our president of like him trying to like make peace with North Korea who are then threatening to like bomb us. And I was also, and it was like coinciding with me reading about like, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and like the atomic, like the atomic bombs, you right. know what I mean? And like, I would get these like paralyzing, like nightmares and yeah. stuff where I would like, where like I was being bombed in my nightmare. Wow. And then I would wake up because it would just go to blackness, like just completely black in my dream. And I'd wake up sweating. Yeah. And it didn't happen a lot. It happened like a couple of times, I think, but I was not doing well, right. clearly, <laughs> like just reading all this stuff all the time. Right. So, um, I've kind of, I've like taken a step away from that in my personal practice and something that I want to eventually like make, I would love to make a graphic novel about it, you mm -hmm. know, in the, in the theme of mouse. Um, but just for right now, like just mentally, right. I, I just, I'll cop to like, just not emotionally being capable. Mind if I ask really quick before yeah. we get back to this question, but like, how do you handle like the news now every day? Do you just avoid it? Do you try to avoid it? So I, I, I go through phases. Okay. Um, I would say that the way that I cope is with just like stuff in my life in general is usually through humor. Okay. That's how I cope. Um, that's hard to do sometimes, yeah, especially definitely. when everything is awful all the time. Yeah. Um, and especially when the news is extremely triggering because literally every single aspect of things that could go wrong seem to have been going wrong. Right. And just worse and worse and worse. And it is paralyzing. It is traumatizing, honestly. So um, what I do is uh, sometimes when I know, when I know like a, a critical event is happening, I'll listen to like KPCC on my way to work because hmm. um, they'll usually cover what's going on right. um, or like a different like NPR station. And then I'll sometimes I'll like listen to like a podcast about a specific thing. Um, like I was listening to The Daily for a while. Um, or usually, honestly, I just get my news through Twitter because it's easy to just open the homepage, be like, here's an overview of everything fucked happening. Yeah. And then I can slide over to the entertainment section to like, look at celebrity gossip to kind of yeah. like transition out of reading the news kind of thing. I don't know if that's a good coping mechanism yeah. or not, but you know, so it's like, it's like trying to, I've, I've been trying to work on trying to strike a balance between, um, how do I say, like making sure I stay current right. and like up to date, but then also making sure that I'm in a place where like I can actually be like a functional yeah. member of it society. Take your whole life. Yeah, and like and like help people on like a small scale throughout yeah. my day if yeah. I can. You know? So that's that's the that's the happy medium I try gotcha. to strike. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. So that's I was just curious about that because yeah, you're yeah. talking about reading up on the the history of everything. Totally. Um and so but I, I kind of interrupted in the middle no, of no, okay. art in your, yeah. and mental health. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on with how those two coincide? I think, I think the other thing about art is that I'm a, 
I'm obviously a very visual thinker. <laughs> so um, journaling is fine. I, I like journaling. Um, journaling is something that's really helped me at different points in my life. Um, I try to keep up with it, but also my attention span can be really short. So sometimes the most therapeutic thing is like, like a lot of my um, illustrative work is very like intricate and detailed. So for me, honestly, sometimes the nicest thing is to just zone out mm. and like watch TV and like work on, watch TV or like watch a good movie and like work on, or like listen to music, you know, and like work on something where I'm just filling in details of mm. a piece. Mm. And it's like very meticulous and like I get hyper-focused on it, so. Nice. It's kind of a good brain break. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, in terms of art and your mental health, and also the workshop we did, Changing Tides, yeah. is the AAPI org. Yeah. You spoke about, um, you know, the research you did on like the literal bombing in Japan and like how that yeah. impacted your mental health. But, I mean, I've seen you did the workshop here. I've seen you at LTTT. Yeah. And you work at Janum. I do. So I'm curious, like I'm here a well, lot. <laughs> yeah, you're in Little Tokyo often. It sounds all like. the time. <laughs> so with that, I'm wondering, like, what role does the JA community play in your life? Such a big part. Okay. Such a big part because okay, so I'm also in the like, like to me, to me, it doesn't feel that whoa, you know, because it's just how I grew up. But I do know it is it seems to be less common to have when you have like um, a mixed race family, multiracial family, where I guess like speaking for myself, like one of your parents is white and the other one is Japanese. I feel like more often than not, um, friends will have like a Japanese mom and a white dad, but I have a Japanese dad and a mm. white mom. So my, my white mom has been like phenomenal at like passing down and like participating in like so like she's gone above and beyond in terms of like embracing like and like passing down like Japanese cultural stuff from like my Japanese grandma to me wow. even though she's like my white mom right um so like my and like my dad like is very like JA in his like mentality towards life so I feel like that side of things like that cultural aspect of like how you carry yourself your emotions. I feel like I very much like have picked up a lot of that from my dad, but in terms of like, just like cultural, like, like Jap, like, what, how do you say? Being Japanese American 101, like my mom has like done the most huh. with like teaching me about different foods, wow. you know? Um, so like my mom makes sukiyaki. She used to make sukiyaki for my birthday. Um, or she would get me like onigiri, um, give that to me as a snack in the car from when she go to Japanese market after school. You know, like I get a salmon one. Mm -hmm. So, or she'd, she'd make sushi, like little rice balls Fun. for me for, for lunch and stuff when I was in elementary school. So, so, but yeah. And so, so I grew up um, culturally Jewish is how I put it. Um, like I haven't been to synagogue since like second grade. Okay. Um, but when I was in fourth grade, I promise this all ties in. So when I was in Don't fourth worry. grade, um, I had the sudden realization that a lot of the kids in my class would go to church on Sundays, but my family didn't go to synagogue and we didn't go to temple, like Buddhist temple. So I asked my dad, I think like on the way to like a little league game or something for like soccer. Um, 
I asked him, like, oh, like, how come we don't go to church on Sunday? And he was like, do you want to go to church on Sunday? Because also, like, you, like, you have to keep in mind, like, my dad's upbringing is, like, 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 both my parents are boomers, you know, so, like, born right after World War II. So my dad and his siblings hated going to temple because they didn't want to be Japanese, mm, you know, not to right. generalize, but, right. but also it's, like, because, like, they would get made fun of for being Japanese, and they didn't, that's why nobody speaks Japanese in my family, pretty much, because my grandma sent them to language school at the Buddhist temple, and they were, like, so affected by racism and like stigma, you know, and like, we just want to be American. That They're right. like, we don't want to know Japanese mom, right. you know? So, and she's like, okay, fine. You know, like you don't have to go. So, um, so I think like, I think within that, like, I, I haven't actually talked to my dad about this, like straight up, but I would assume based off of like hearing his siblings talk about going to Buddhist temple as a kid right. that, um, it wasn't the most fun place to be or like where they really wanted to be on the weekend, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. As is probably true with most, most kids that are made that like have to go to church, any kind of de like denominational, non-denominational, any kind of religious thing on the weekend with their folks, you know? Yeah. So he was like surprised when I was like, I want to do this. But then I think like, honestly, one of the kindest things that my parents have ever done for me. Um, and also like one of the things I've like, been the luckiest about about being an only child is that they let me pick my own religion when I was in fourth grade so sweet so sweet so they yeah. so they I remember we were sitting at the at our kitchen island in Seattle and um like like I literally remember my mom and my dad being like so would you rather like okay so this is something that you want to do do you want to do synagogue do you want to try doing that again or do you want to go to like Buddhist temple and in my like super like uppity fourth grade brain, I was like, I already did the Judaism thing, mom. Like I went to synagogue with you once in second grade for Passover and fell asleep because I didn't understand anything that they were saying. <laughs> so I was like, I want to try Buddhism, you know, which is like, oy vey. But <laughs> so that's how I ended up going to Buddhist temple. Okay. So I went to Buddhist temple every Sunday from fourth through 12th grade. Wow. Um, and I got like really involved at the Seattle Betsuin and stuff um, through like our like youth things and like Young Boost Association. Like I did a lot of like temple camps and stuff wow. like that. Um, so I feel incredibly grateful for that because I think that um, it's really helped me feel a lot more connected to like my Japanese identity. And I think that um, like, I know I definitely tend to overcompensate for not knowing Japanese in terms of like, just like dweebing out on like every other thing I could possibly dweeb out on that I find of interest in terms of like Japanese culture and like Japanese American culture. Uh -huh. But I think, I think too, it's like, I think, yeah, that, that's, that's how I ended up becoming so involved <laughs> in various uh -huh. like Japanese American community stuff. Gotcha. And then in college, like I started doing more research about my own family and then mm -hmm. I actually, went to Janum in college hmm. um, and met one of our, our wonderful collection specialists, Jamie, shout out Jamie, um, who like showed me all of my grandpa's stuff that was in her collection. From oh, wow. He was like in the 442, you wow. know? So that's how it just kind of went full circle because I right. grew up going there too with my grandpa. Oh, really? Know? Yeah. So no, that's that. I mean, it's 
it's interesting because like I feel like that's so universal among like mm -hmm. us who don't speak Japanese. Yeah. Um, I was just speaking. I just the last episode was Mike Morase, who's like one of the founders of LTSC, mm -hmm. and like his whole, you know, it's like the exact opposite experience for us, where mm -hmm. I wish I knew Japanese, but because I don't, I try to overcompensate. Oh, 100%. Like, I want to know yeah. everything about Little Tokyo. I want to know, like, the movies. Like, if there's any reference to, like, the movie Akira, I'll let everyone around me know. Like, oh, that was from Akira, or, like, they're pulling inspiration from Have it. you seen that? Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah. Have exactly. you heard this? Yeah. If you like that, I think you would like this. It's like, it's yeah. kind of no, it's kind of the reason why anime is so popular in America, but you wouldn't know. It's like Loki. It's like Loki. You know, no big like, deal. No big deal. Have you seen Kanye West's stronger music video? <laughs> You'll love this. Actually, has a lot of cultural references, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, it's, uh, but yeah, I just found it interesting that, like, you seem so involved in the community, and I was curious, like, what, like, what role it played for you. Yeah. Um, is there like an aspect of like identity? Because I, I keep coming yeah. back to identity because I know that was a big talking point during the workshop as yeah. well. Um, that like, do you have like a stronger sense of, did you, when did you gain a stronger sense of like identity, whether it's your JA side, yeah. your Russian Jewish side, yeah. like, like, I know like you grew up with the food, like your mom would give you the food, yeah. but, but like, totally. when did you like really have an appreciation for it, I guess? I think in college, I was, I was, I'll be real, like, I was a pretty, like, um, I don't want to say, like, naive, necessarily, but, like, kind of just, like, privileged and blissfully unaware of, like, being, like, the different parts of that come with being multiracial, firstly, because almost all of my Japanese cousins are also half-white, except for three of them. So that never felt weird to me growing up. And I was all, there was always, there was like literally like two other half Jewish, half Japanese kids in my, in my elementary school class mm. for like five years, you know? That's so, so random, yeah. so random. Um, Seattle. Um, <laughs> so I think in that sense, like it just felt very normal to me in a way that I think it really doesn't for a lot of kids growing up to like be half Japanese, half white. Um, or to be like multiracial. Um, and then also just having like so much white privilege is like a very, very pasty kid, you know? Oh, really? Like, like the, the Washington sun just doesn't shine sometimes. <laughs> so like the, the worst things that would happen to me growing up would just be creepy old men being like, what are you? You know, or just kids being little shits and yeah. like making squinty eyes, you know, or being like, why are you so good at math? You know? Interesting. So like, like that kind of thing where I, it, it impacted me. And there's definitely a lot of things that I've like looked at. I've like thought about from, I don't know, like middle school and high school, especially where I've like, been like, Oh, that was what a microaggression is. You know, that was microaggression. That was microaggression. That was microaggression. But I didn't, I think before I went to like rural arts college, like I didn't have the vocabulary necessarily to like describe a microaggression. Right. You know, so I think that that's when I really became a lot more like, like self-aware and then also just aware of like my different communities and stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, but that, like, that makes me think of like, because for me, like I also didn't think about what microaggressions even were or yeah. like, you know, like. I, like I used to think they were funny too, just because like I don't know, 
I get it. Like I get the joke. Ha ha. Ha ha. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool. But like, I just think it's well, like once you realize like all of these little things were microaggressions. Yeah. Like, did you have like a weird like, like wow? Like, did it kind of hit you later on? Like, even though yeah. it's not happening now, did it kind of hit you like later on? Like, oh, there, I went through all this crap. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of similar to like my anxiety, but just on a smaller scale because my anxiety is a lot harder for me to deal with. Um, but just that feeling of like being like, oh, like it's like that thing of like thinking back on like my OCD as a kid and being like, that was OCD. Hmm. That was OCD. Oh, that was OCD. <laughs> it's it's kind of like that thing of like not, I think like in college I went, I definitely like had like a big like, like, how would you describe it? I don't know. I think everybody at my school, from not everybody. Okay, wait. Maybe. I want to be careful with what I'm saying. I want to be intentional with uh-huh. what I'm saying. Um, how do I say? I think I just was honestly, like, so in such a place of privilege growing up hmm. that I didn't, I, it wasn't something that I needed to worry about. And I didn't, I think... Like, then coming here and then, like, understanding what that means to me in terms of, like, my positionality and being able to help others and whatnot. Um, Does this make any sense? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, But to bring it kind of back to the art side, Mm -hmm. does it ever, is it ever difficult for you to, like, do art as work? And then art as an outlet for your mental health or does it kind of does even the work stuff kind of help your mental health side it depends on what i'm working on at work uh-huh. um there's i definitely because i work with every department okay so I'm, I'm a graphic designer at janum um and i think definitely certain projects i get more like creative leeway uh-huh. um or like for some projects I get to like do illustrations for it, you know? So in that, in that sense, it kind of like feeds, when I get to do those things, it really, really feeds my like artistic appetite, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it is really hard though to balance 40 hour work week where you're have your creative cap on and then go home. So the thing that, I love the most though about having my day job be graphic design is that it really helps me um, like keep, I don't know, it helps me like work out my brain in terms of like thinking spatially, creatively, like visually um, in a way that really I found has been impacting my personal art practice. And then when I go home, I want to get better about being more committed to my studio time in my in my room, but um, it's it's a nice it's a nice like flippity flop I guess you could say to like painting and drawing right. and whatnot after work. Okay. Yeah. Where it's like I'm still using the same parts of my brain and the same like muscles, but it's it's different enough right. and it's separate enough that I I am not bored. Right. Of it all at the end of the day. Gotcha. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the creative freedom at work because I. Before this interview, I was looking through the Jana Instagram. Yeah. I was like, this definitely looks like Rosie's artwork. <laughs> like, there are certain ones I was like, there's creative freedom. She did that. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely creative freedom on these ones. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, 
as like the first one in your family to like make art your profession and like you're not only like what you like creatively but like your day job as a graphic designer yeah. like we've discussed imposter syndrome before mm -hmm. so when it comes to you know art and imposter syndrome how do you conquer imposter syndrome when it comes up i i actually think that um working at janum has been very therapeutic for my imposter syndrome because it's like i don't know because i'm working in like a predominantly japanese american space mm. so so to answer your question about imposter syndrome uh to me the way that imposter syndrome manifests inside and outside of any workplace i've ever been in um is the feeling of like when you're like in a room of people like nerding out about like techno or like house music for instance and you know that you are by far the most knowledgeable in this like one niche area mm. and yet for some reason you're still so afraid to like start talking about it just in case like either you don't have a specific fact right about some song or album or like you actually don't, you secretly have no idea what you're talking about. It's all a big lie, you know? So to me, that's like, it's the best analogy I can think of right now, I think, of, of just being like in a room where you're like, I actually am an expert and I actually do know the most. And if I don't know the most, I at the bare minimum know enough to like put in my two cents or even like six cents about this topic, you know? But then just having that like, um, that like learned fear of like, oh, what if I say something embarrassing or incorrect? Or what if, like, it's just the what ifs. It's anxiety, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. So like, I know it came up like with our art workshop in yeah. terms of like, you know, compensation, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like, how do you, like, how do you, when you know that you should be paid for your work? Because I think, you know, a lot, when it comes to being an artist, a lot of people are like, oh, you're an artist. I'm not going to pay you for whatever reason. Oh, they love doing that. Right. They, they're so good at it. So yeah. like, how do you, like, <laughs> of course it's like, you could, you could look at it yourself and be like, Oh, I'm just starting out. I need to build up my portfolio. Yeah. I'll do this for my portfolio. But how do you like make sure, like, how do you build up the courage to be like, no, like, like what about payment? You know? What I, what I have started telling myself is I am, I should always be paid more than I think I should. Hmm. So, um, like, I think, I think to me it's become like setting clear boundaries around payment. So like I can do this, this, and this for you, but if you need this, this, and this done, we're going to, that's going to be a separate conversation. Right. So like, it can be like that. Um, like I'm still trying to figure out like freelance stuff too, you know? And also it is difficult sometimes because I think when you're starting out, like a lot of your work comes from like friends needing stuff done. Yeah. And then it's like, you want to be like cool and chill, you know, and like, oh, like, don't worry about it, man. You know, uh -huh. like, you're my friend, you know, like I got you. But at some point it's like, you got to pay your bills. Friends need to, okay. Yeah. Friends need to support friends. If you're, yes, if you're <laughs> turning to the camera, <laughs> if your friends are doing smart, starting a small business, they're doing yeah. freelance work, support them, pay them, you should be, yeah, yeah, like that's how I've always, or maybe not always, but like ever since like having a job ever yeah. in any field, work, working in any field, yeah, you should be paid for your time you and for your work, absolutely. So, I think 
that I mean like that conversation with a friend is definitely tough it's tough but it, you need to have it at some yeah. point yeah it needs to happen yeah well I appreciated your like transparency with me in terms of payment too because because I think too like the other thing I'm learning is like depending on the situation sometimes like it is okay to just be like hey I don't like this is what I would like to be paid you yeah. know and it's also like the worst that somebody can tell you is just like oh, I can't pay you that much. Uh -huh. How about this? And then you know where they're at, and then you can be like, oh, okay, is this actually worth my time? Right. And then the worst thing is that you just don't, you just don't work on that project, you yeah. know? I feel like I feel like if it's someone who um, isn't willing to meet you at least halfway. At least. You know? At the, the, the bar is so low. Right. <laughs> if they're not willing to at least meet you halfway, yeah. it's not someone you want to work with. Mm -mm. So, mm -mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, but I agree. Uh, I've asked you questions, a lot of questions about art, about yeah. your own mental health. I have some like silly questions. Okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to mention or touch on that I either didn't ask you about or that has come to mind? No. Um, I was typing at one point because I thought of this question, uh, but what's like the strangest or like most unique place you found inspiration for art? or design oh oh okay most unique most unique for art or design um honestly i find myself finding so much inspiration from places that i thought were like so fucking boring as a kid and like things i thought were like so boring like why why is mom taking me here today uh -huh. you know like even like the mall okay stuff like that you know or um or like Buddhist temple too, oh, okay. you know. Uh, I think I think to me too, it's it's also just more like trying to evoke like a specific feeling through through art and design. So, um, like the kind of art practice I'm really interested in right now is more so just like building like excuse me like building like a physical representation of like how I see the world. Hmm. So not necessarily making it so focused on like, I am tackling this one specific issue, you know? Cause I think just, just for me personally, that gets very draining mm -hmm. and also obsessional sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think it's just like throughout the day, you know, I'll just kind of notice stuff, notice colors, notice things, you know, yeah, yeah. feel, feel what I'm feeling about them and then kind of pocket it for later. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. I think it's yeah. really unique that you found it in places that you used to think are boring. So boring. Yeah. yeah. Or like yeah. building buildings where you're like, oh, why is anybody working in that building? You like know? for me, like I used to hate libraries. Yeah. I think libraries are like all like you, libraries are all very unique, and some of them are like really beautiful. Actually. So beautiful. The architecture is insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love the library. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what is currently your favorite favorite restaurant in Little Tokyo? Currently, okay. I am a hardcore Mitsuru stan, fan. So it's always gonna be her. I, I just, there's just something about it. Um, Dory, the waitress, mm -hmm. so sweet, <laughs> so kind. Um, I love the vibe in there. Uh -huh. I like having a place where I can just like sit in silence with elders of the community while we enjoy our separate meals at different booths 
and I feel like I'm like hanging out with my grandparents. Oh, yeah. It's like, it just feels so like nostalgic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, You're transported to the year it was made basically too, like right when you walk in. Yeah, yeah. which I, I love. It's like a little time capsule. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I love you, Mitsudu. I love you. <laughs> well, make sure to send them this audio. I love you. <laughs> uh, what other art form would you like to pick up? Okay, I've started dabbling in sewing. Oh, cool. And I really want to get into quilting. Cool. So that's my big thing. Just because I grew up, like my, my Japanese grandma was so good at quilting. Mm -hmm. Even one of my, one of my um, Japanese uncles, his wife is really good at quilting too. Oh, cool. So I just, I think that it's, um, like I saw an exhibit I think at MoCo that was about like traditional, like, uh, kind of like, the boom of like women's folk art or hmm. folk art that's seen as being traditionally effeminate or like feminine um and that like that show was like so incredible hmm. so i think that um like my professor in college would always be like the material has to match the meaning you mm -hmm. know um so i think i think that that's kind of how i've gone about trying to incorporate like morals and values into my yeah. artwork is thinking about like what materials i'm using and like how i'm using them Got it. kind of thing yeah very cool uh and then to round it out or no sorry two more okay if you could invite five people to dinner dead or alive who would they be okay 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 i would invite susumu yokota okay. who's my favorite electronic musician on the whole planet who unfortunately died i think at the age of 54. Oh. um I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> His music, so good. Um, also, just all the photos I've seen of him, he just looks so cool. Uh -huh. And I'm like, I, I just want, I want to know you. Okay. Um, so him. I think, uh, honestly, it might just be like a musician roundtable. So be Susumu Yokota. And then I think I would also want to invite... Oh, I don't know. It's so many people. So many cool people. Maybe like, uh, maybe like Maya Rudolph. Cool. I just think she's so sick. And I was like such a fangirl of hers as a kid because I grew up watching like that era of SNL. Uh -huh. um, okay, corny, but probably Keanu Reeves. Um. <laughs> This is an interesting dinner. It's I think we would learn a lot yeah. about each other. Um, I think that I would also... Can these be fictional people? Sure. Okay, I actually don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so far we have Susan Maricota, Maya Rudolph, Keanu Reeves, uh -huh. and then... Um, Maybe like one of my like Jewish great grandparents or like great great grandparents, just because I just because we went through like Ellis Island and had like a um, crazy name change, so I just know so little but about that side of my family. Um, like I've seen like one black and white photo uh -huh. uh, where I'm like, that's who I'm related to. Like this looks like it's in a time capsule from yeah. like the Titanic or something. <laughs> um, so maybe them, and then. Um, Man, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like another another fun celebrity. Um, probably just like another musician. I think maybe 
maybe like Arthur Russell or something. Okay. Yeah. That would be a crazy dinner. It's a very That would be a really wild people. dinner. Yeah. Very wild mix. Um, and then to round it out, yeah. what would the title of your autobiography be? Worry Wart. Okay. Worry Wart. Oh, that was quick. Yeah. Cool. Worry Wart. That's, That's what I would call it. Yeah. Cool. Well, Rosie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Of course. And yeah, that about wraps it up. Yay. Cool. Thank you so much to Rosie for joining the podcast and taking the time to meet me downtown at the Budokan to do this in-person interview. It was so great to talk about your mental health story. Um, For those of you who were able to join us at the Art Talk series, uh, Rosie was so outspoken and it was just great for us to flesh out her story a little bit more here on the podcast. So if you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our show for our episodes that release on every other Tuesday and give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you would like to support our podcast and help us grow, you can do so with a donation to the link at the bottom of the episode description. To hear more about Changing Tides, follow us on Instagram at LTSC underscore Changing Tides or check out our website, thechangingtides.org. Let's continue to change the tides on mental health. Yeah.